1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa and science advisor Professor Matt Moniz along for the ride. And right now we have in the studio with us Keith and Sandra Johnson from New England Anomalies Research. And uh, they are going to bless the studio for us because we have so many problems here all the time when we talk about the paranormal. So we're going to bless the studio uh, in preparation for tonight's subject, uh, New England Vampires. And, of course, many other issues that will come up, and we welcome your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and online, SpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, right now we will step back a bit from the mics, and we'll let Keith and Sandra do their thing. In the name of our Creator God, we ask blessings upon our endeavor this evening. We ask that any negative forces be expelled and in their place we ask for that which is holy we also ask for angelic protection upon us this evening angelic protection watching over us that nothing which is negative can harm us cause destruction permeate negativity this night we ask this blessing in the name of our creator God we ask for that which is holy Join us and for protection. Pie Yezo, que tolas pecatamunde, dona es recreum. Pie Yezo, que tolas pecatamunde, dona es recreum. Angus Dei, que tolas pecatamunde, dona es recreum. Sempaternum, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, grant us peace, grant us rest. We ask the Lord's blessing on this place. May a mighty and holy warrior angel stand by guarding us upon this endeavor. We ask this in the name of our Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit. Let us bring holy water as they recite the prayer. And of the angelic host. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. We ask your spirit to guide us. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. This concludes the blessing. And so there you have it, a live blessing of the Spooky South Coast Studios. So uh, we're just going to take a quick second to regroup here. I'm going to have Matt uh, run a couple commercials, and we'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. It's a dark night. 
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. As we said at the top of the program, Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa behind the boards, and Professor Matt Moniz behind everything else. So uh, we would like to welcome into the studio demonologist Keith Johnson from New England Anomalies Research, and you also know him as the demonologist from the Atlantic Paranormal Society. And uh, his wife Sandra helped him with that blessing. Thank you both very much. Hopefully that'll help. Hopefully. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, aside from the uh, evil forces that might be interrupting our show sometimes, there's probably some gremlins in the system as well. Uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure this board came over in the 1940s, so it wouldn't surprise me. Well, so you guys uh, have had an interesting uh, week. Uh, last week you called us at the top of the show out investigating a haunted mill and had some happenings. Uh, maybe you should fill in everybody on that because we didn't really get back in touch with you. We were worried about you the whole time. Well, thank the Lord we made it back safely. We had a very successful investigation. We did have some activity. Two of our members, Kim and Russ, happened to be walking in back of us along the trail. It's about a 25-minute walk to this place in uh, Foster, Rhode Island, and it's a, an abandoned mill site. They turned around. They saw somebody walking, or what they thought was somebody walking in back of them. Actually, all they saw was a pair of legs, and then it kind of disappeared behind a tree, and then uh, they saw no trace of it again. So, Then later on, I, was, I swear there were people coming up in back of us, so I just waited for them to approach, and they never did. So, Then two of our members, uh, Mike and um, Rob, had their shirt tails pulled, so... Something was going on. They felt some really cold breezes, really frigid breezes, and uh, I would say that place is definitely uh, attributed to paranormal activity. And, and you felt cold breezes, uh, and, and I can attest, at least up this way, uh, last Saturday night was very warm. Yes, yeah, it was we, warm. We spent quite some time out in the parking lot after the show talking with uh, Derek and Keith from Capers, and I remember remarking about how warm it was mm-hmm. So to, to get those kind of cold spots. And also, the tugging of the shirt is really interesting because that's... You know, that's an invasion of personal space. You know what I mean? That's oh, yes. something reaching out and trying to, to get your attention. Definitely. And the, uh, you know, the pair of legs, that's very interesting because uh, Steve Gonzalez experienced something similar at Waverly Hills where you see just the legs walking. Is that something that is a frequent occurrence uh, to see just, I mean, uh, we hear about upper torso apparitions, but is it strangely floating hands or anything like this? Is this something that is commonly reported? Interestingly, a few years ago, Taps was at a location in Brooklyn, New York. We're upstairs in one of the rooms. Brian Hanwa saw a pair of legs walk into the room, but he didn't see a body to go along with it. So, yes, this has been reported before. Some people will report seeing just a hand floating, or that's even in the Bible, you know, as the writing on the wall. But, mm-hmm. um, yes, uh, that, that is not uncommonly reported in hauntings, that it will not be a full body. It will somehow be incomplete. As if it's trying to tell you something. Well, exactly. It's it's getting enough of the message out there. It may not be able to fully manifest, but it's making its point known. Now, how did it come about that you went out to this location? I mean, is this something that you'd been planning? Because I remember you told us last week that it was a, a commonly known haunted place. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It's something we've been planning for a while. I've been there quite a few times myself. I'm very familiar with the area and with the story. But there's some members of our group, New England Anomalies Research, that had never been there before. So I figured this would be a good night to take them there. Is it kind of like a, a training ground like uh, for people that are new into the field? This is a place you take them because you can pretty much say, you know, this is a good place for an investigation, some things have happened here? It could be. It could be, as long as we go in numbers. 
It, it just makes me think of like a firemen. You know, when they're training firemen, they oh, have yes. those. Those I forget what they call them, but they you know like in Worcester they have one. It's like they set it up and it's a. a I don't want a model of a burning building, essentially. Yes. I think going for training purposes, and it seems like there's these little paranormal spots here and there that we can almost use as a as a training ground for investigators. Oh yes, definitely. We have several spots where we do that, where we take new members or members in training and and see what they're you know going to react like if something does happen. I mean, we don't want to take them into obviously a demonically infested house in their first mm-hmm. time. Although that did happen to us when uh, my brother and I were teenagers. So trial by fire. Right, exactly. And of course, uh and one thing that we do want to mention too for people who are interested in getting involved with the paranormal who may not have any experience at all uh, or may just, you know, you might not want to get out in the field but you at least want to learn a little bit more and find out a little bit more evidence. Uh, Keith is giving a class next Friday night at the South Coast Learning Building in New Bedford. Uh, and we took the class last time he was in the city, and it was just amazing. Uh, not only the evidence that they present, but also the wealth of information that they give you. And, I mean, I'm still looking over my notes constantly from that class because I use them to reference in other things that I'm reading about. Now, how long does it take you to put this class together, to put together the, uh, the syllabus for, for teaching this course? Well, it's basically what we've been doing all along. So we actually tried to condense everything to try to possibly fit it into two hours, which is very, very difficult to do. We usually we try not to go over the time limit, but there's just so much to cover. So basically our, uh, our main thing was just condensing it. Okay, we've got this to say. We could talk an hour on this subject or more. How do we condense this into ten minutes and then go on to a next subject? So we're largely with the help of my wife, Sandra, we put that together and... Uh, she does seem to be the brains behind the operation. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I like kinda, to think so. <laughs> well, you, you know, like uh, Ozzy Osbourne, she's, she's kind of my Sharon, so I'd be kind of lost without her. So. Well, uh, that's that's a pretty interesting uh, analogy there because I, I don't see Keith walking around the house yelling, Sandra! <laughs> no, I don't go that far. But <laughs> and, and as you said, you know, you try to wrap it up within two hours, but you do invite people to bring in their own evidence. Oh, yes. And that yes, is, that's when it gets really interesting because, you know, here are your friends and neighbors uh, from right here in the city or in the South Coast area bringing in their own evidence of hauntings. And last time we were there, there was definitely some, some interesting uh, photographs and some interesting uh, EVPs from our friends at uh, New England Paranormal Video Research Group. Mm-hmm. And uh and do you find that usually you also conduct these classes in Providence as well, right? Yes, we do. And do you find that when they when people do bring in their own evidence, is it usually pretty convincing, or do you find a lot of, you know, like I went out in the graveyard during a rainstorm and I captured all these orbs? Well, yes, we get that too. We get, you know, some people bring in photographs and they think every little dust particle is a spirit. Well, then we get some people who are very skeptical, too, and we get, you know, various various opinions. And uh, But we, we love to look over them and give people our opinion, and people say, uh, we want your expert opinion. Well, in my opinion, nobody's really an expert in this field. You just You just try to get as much knowledge as you can as you go along. And, and one thing that I've kind of changed my mind a bit on here, and over the past couple of weeks I've been kind of looking at some of these new groups that are coming out there, their websites, their MySpace pages, mm-hmm. they're putting up evidence, and I say, you know, all right, that's dust, that's rain, that's, you know, they have all these or and, and I was looking at it from the perspective of these people are trying to pass off sketchy evidence at best as good, solid evidence. And I've come to realize that that's not really the case, I don't think. I think it's more just a learning process for a lot of these groups that they have to learn to distinguish the stuff. And the first time you go out there and capture an orb with a camera and you think that you have something solid, 
you know, it's it's a process. And so, you know, for any of those groups out there I may have offended, and uh, that was not my intention, I apologize because I've come to understand, you know, what's going on. I mean, we, as you said, you know, you backed into a, a demonic entity in your first case. We backed into, you know, some pretty solid EVP evidence the first time that we went out. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we take that for granted that some people... You know, are still learning. They don't have a class like this available to them to go and take and to learn some of this information right away. True. And we say one of the greatest assets to have in this field is patience, simply patience, because you may hit the jackpot the first time, mm-hmm. you know, the beginner's luck, so to speak, but uh, there's those times where you just spend hours and hours and hours of reviewing activity and, and you know, a potential activity, and sometimes you find nothing. I mean, uh, Sandra and I have been staring at footage of a bathroom door for like two and a half hours and we're just intentionally matrixing little animals i see an owl in the in the woodwork of you know and uh you know it just but you have to have a sense of humor about it too and uh well and, and that is one of the worst things too is when uh somebody sends you a photo and they're like i see over in the corner of this you know this figure and it's like whoa, 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 whoa don't tell me that right exactly you'd rather find it yourself and if it if it comes out at you great you know so, and as you said, you know, it took a while to be able to pare down, you know, this wealth of knowledge into a two-hour course. And do you find uh, when people leave, are, are there other aspects of the paranormal that they'd like to, like to see taught? Because I know we've talked about uh, possibly doing a demonology course. Yes. So many people would be interested in at least getting, you know, a, a background education in demonology. We find that a lot. At the end of the class, people say, you know, I, I wish you would talk more about the uh, inhuman aspects, the demonology and everything. But, of course, you have to understand that a lot of people, there are experienced people that take our class that's all levels, but uh, there are also people that this is totally new to, and we, mm-hmm. we don't want to just start out, you know, with the heavy stuff. We want to say this is blow by blow, this is how we began our investigation process, this is how we conduct our investigations and so if you're new to this this is a, a good course to take and, and of course there are still some spots open at least when i checked on the website earlier uh it didn't have a little blacked out box so you still could sign up but i'm sure space is limited because when we went last time it was packed to the gills in there so fills up pretty fast yes if you want to go to near paranormal n-e-a-r paranormal.com or southcoastlearning.org you can sign up if you go to our website spookysouthcoast.com uh, click on the blog. We have a direct link to the sign-up page for the course. And I noticed, too, that uh, there's an additional date being offered now in October, a, a rather ominous date. Did you select that on purpose, or was that kind of just coincidence? No, that was juggled, and so finally that was given to us. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be on Friday, October 13th. Mm-hmm. So if you <laughs> if you don't have a chance to get in on the 28th... That was fate. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's a very convenient day to be able to take it, because uh, if anything paranormal is going to happen to you, it's that night. And of course, you know, being downtown in historic New Bedford, uh, you, you feel... You know the history surrounding you. I mean, it's, this is a seaport that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, and we were there on a rainy night, uh, and and you can really just feel that atmosphere around you. So when you go to the class, bring your bring your uh, digital recorders and your cameras and your EMF detectors with you because who knows? We welcome that. Yes, and also you have something else uh, interesting that you've. Uh, unleashed here on the world the ghosts are near television program yes indeed and this is a cable access program yes it is it is a cable access program we we're into our first month of it we, it's just begun airing and i think i'll have my wife sandra tell you a little about that okay you can tell us about uh about this program and how it came about i think uh, people would be interested in knowing how this translates to well um 
As you mentioned before, um, there are a lot of people out there that would like um, to take our classes that live in other parts of the country. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons. Um, you mentioned um, uh, doing a class uh, uh, with concerning demonology. Mm -hmm. um, we would like to do that. There is a, um, a, a lot of demand for it. We get emails all the time, you know, um, how do I become a demonologist? Well, we can't tell you how to become a demonologist, but we would like to offer those those courses. Um, outside of that, uh, we we um, have started doing this cable access show. Um, uh, it's um, you know we do have guests on. It's it's kind of like what you're doing here. Um, it's just it's easier sometimes when you can present uh, evidence in a visual manner instead of us, you know, sitting around the microphone telling people about what's in a photo or... Right. And um, we are um, uh, in the midst of uh, trying to get the shows um, uploaded so that uh, people around the country uh, can watch them. We've, we've got people in Scotland that have been asking us. So, um, you know, we're working on it. <laughs> For your listeners, we're working. <laughs> and, and, of course, uh, we'll keep everybody updated as well uh, if it does reach that point because... So many people. I mean, it's it's crazy. Uh, on our message board, if anybody has an, an issue or a problem and they report their own story and there's something going on, at first it was me saying to everybody, well, you know, you need to contact Keith Johnson. And now it's before I can even get on the message board and, and suggest that to somebody, there's other people saying, you know, we've heard Keith on the show. This is the person you want to talk to. He understands, and he's not going to make light of your situation. So, I mean, you really are blazing a trail here. Keith can help you. Yeah. He's the exactly. Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you're, you're really helping to make the paranormal normal for some people, to make them feel that it's, it's okay and it's all right. And that's what we're trying to do here. And so... Now, speaking of making the paranormal okay, uh, if people do want to get into investigation, and there, I know there's plenty of people out there, it's important that so much of it starts not necessarily in the classroom, but, you know, in a figurative sense, in the classroom before they get out into the field to learn how to use the equipment, to learn what to expect, to learn all that stuff beforehand. And so they need to connect with somebody such as yourself to, to get that kind of information. Yes. Yes, that's always a good idea to, to look to somebody more experienced, as I did. Because back then when I first started, there wasn't that much help available. But I read every book I could get my hands on, my brother as well. And uh, we, we tried to learn from those more experienced than ourselves. So Ed and Lorraine Warren, for example, uh, the, the works of Hans Holzer. So. so do you feel now like you've kind of stepped into that mentoring role for the up-and-coming? Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm always mentoring somebody. Constantly, there's always somebody, and uh, I feel I'm learning along with them too. As, as I'm helping them, I'm learning as well, and so I feel it's all one big, you know, happy family. It is. I mean, because once you've opened your mind and opened your experiences to somebody else, you do feel a personal connection with them. Oh yeah. I mean, you're not just going to call up and, and share your story uh, with just anybody unless you feel comfortable doing so. And when you make that connection, it is like family. This is true. Very true. And, and that's you know what we're hoping we can do here is to convince people that it's okay to call up and to share your experiences with us because we'd like to help you get to the bottom of what's going on. And uh, before we get into tonight's topic, uh, New England Vampires, which I'm very excited about, we would like to throw out the phone numbers. So if you do want to contact Keith, I know there are many people out there, and I put out a MySpace bulletin tonight 
uh, letting people know that you're going to be here and that even if you can't hear the show, it's okay to still call in. We'll, we'll, we'll stop what we're talking about for a few seconds to help somebody if they just need to talk to Keith and, and get something out there and, and at least find out you know, what he thinks. So 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And uh, Matt, do you think we should take a quick break here? Or? Yeah, we can take a break. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we will talk about New England Vampire Legends with Keith Johnson. So stay tuned. Don't look now, but spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services, including Reiki, Kuan Yin, magnified healing, and meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations knowledgeable staff has over 40 years experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Contrary to some beliefs, the vampire, like any other night creature, can move about by day. Though it is not his natural time, and his powers are weak. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. Good evening. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa is along, and Professor Matt Moniz, the science advisor, who is a real scientist, contrary to internet rumors. And uh, why don't you just, uh, why don't you just uh, take that in stride, Matt? That's a uh, I, I know. He's uh, he's not upset about that at all. So, And, uh, of course, we are talking with Keith Johnson. The, you know him as the demonologist and the leader of the New England Anomalies Research Group. Visit them at nearparanormal.com. But tonight we are talking about New England vampire legends and lore. And right before we jump into that, we do have a call on the line. So uh, let's see who it is. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hello. Hello. Uh, I just wanted to, um, I have a story to share. Um, I'm not too sure if I'm crazy or not. <laughs> uh, well, we can tell you that you're not. I mean, we can't, we, we can't be sure, but I mean, if it's a story about the paranormal, we won't tell you you're crazy just based on that. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to say um, hello to Keith. Um, I took his course um, about a, a couple of months ago, and I just had the best time. I thought it was so great, you know. Um, I'm, I'm so interested in the paranormal, and my husband and I took it, and we just loved it, you know. So well, thank, I want to thank, thank him much. for that. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. And now my story. Um, I, it would have happened a few years ago. I um, was uh, 
taking care of my girlfriend's house. Uh, actually, she lived in an apartment in the city, and she had gone away to Europe um, for two weeks, and she asked me to just, you know, stay over and watch it and, you know, take care of the place. And um, so I did, and, like, maybe a couple of days before she was to come home, I was laying in bed at night. It was the middle of the night, and I woke up, and I was so scared. I Nothing had happened. I didn't hear any sounds or anything. I just had a feeling that I wasn't alone. And so I turned on all the lights, and I went and I sat in the living room with the back, uh, the wall to my back. So I could, you know, nobody could walk up behind me or anything. And um, I, just, I just sat there, and I just waited until morning until I could go home. So I never told anybody about it or anything and you know i never went back there um alone i waited until she came home from europe uh to you know to go back there i wasn't going in the house by myself so a couple of weeks go by and she was bringing her laundry to her mother's house and i said don't you have a you have a washroom and dryer in the cellar don't you and she says yeah she says but i refuse to go down there (laughs) She says, there's something in the cellar. I went down once, and she says, I will never go back there again. So she went all the way, two towns away, to do her laundry because she refused to go down in the cellar. Now, do you think it's possible that whatever was in the cellar, now, she never said anything, and I told her my story, and she said, that's exactly the experience that I had in the cellar. Do you think I could, like, it could come up from the cellar, whatever it was? I mean, does it have to be something that I had to see, or I mean, am I crazy, or is it? You, you know? know, you know. Sometimes, sometimes the best thing to do is to trust your instincts, especially when it's a situation where you're alone. I mean, it it could well be your imagination, but if you're feeling that uncomfortable, and if other people are verifying that they feel uncomfortable in the same location, I would tend to trust your instincts. Yeah, I've never had such a fear in my life. I don't, it just felt like an evilness, you know, like something was watching me or I don't know what was going to happen, but I've never been that afraid in my life, you know? (laughs) Well, there are certain entities which will project that um, as a rattlesnake will use its rattle to project fear, to project Mm -hmm. a warning. Some some of these entities will project that, so... uh, I'd say that that you probably did the right thing by not uh, going down there alone and not remaining there. And uh, if you felt that strongly about it, then then especially by yourself, I think you did the right thing. Well, she no longer lives there, so it kind of makes me feel good now when I go visit her. I don't have to go in the same house, you know. Oh, you mean we can't go over and investigate it now? <laughs> well, you oh. could, but she doesn't live there anymore. Oh, that's too bad. Well, let's we'll get, we'll get the new residence. To yeah. Well, well, I'm not going back there. I'll tell you that. It, it's interesting because if you had if you had said you know just when you were in the basement you felt this feeling you felt this oppressive feeling, mm-hmm. uh, you know I would say you know look to the electrical boxes to see where the electric you know sure, a number all of these explanations. Yeah. But the fact that it's carrying up that she feels that level of uncomfortable in the in the basement and that you could feel it you know through the floorboards upstairs it goes beyond just simple. You know things that you can easily dismiss. So right, it, what, it, freaked, it, what freaked me out was that she told me the same. She had felt the same thing, you know, and that just really blew me away. You know, well, the important part of this story is that you did share what you felt with your friend, and that she was willing to share what she felt back with you. And if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that openness, then you know who knows what could have happened. Uh, right, something, right. 
you know, could have actually eventually made its presence a little bit more known. So, at yeah, least... thank God it wasn't when I was there. <laughs> and, and that's what we're, we're hoping that we can do is to get more people share those stories. Who knows? Maybe the people that live there now are listening and they've felt the same thing. So, Right, right. Well, I just want to thank you for your show. I listen to it every weekend. It's thank you. Well, in that case, we know you're not crazy if you listen to our show every week. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, that's debatable. Other people say other, you know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, we All thank right, you, you for sharing your experience. Time. You too. Good night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, yes, and if you'd like to share, please, 508-996-0500, 508 uh, Of course, we, we never think anybody's crazy because we, we are crazy, so we know what crazy is. So uh, we doubt that any people from the any of our callers or any of our guests are ever crazy. I don't suffer from insanity. I enjoy every minute there of it. There you go. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, and, and now, Keith, uh, you approached us um, previously about something that you really wanted to talk about in, is New England vampire legends. And that's something that you don't really hear about anymore. Uh, we're famous for witches. We're famous for all kinds of haunted locations and haunted happenings. But just how rich is the history of vampires in the New England area? It's actually very rich. Very, very rich and... I'm surprised that it's not more well-known because it was such a common belief in past generations. I mean, everybody basically believed in it, at least in the rural parts of New England, especially Rhode Island. It was particularly concentrated in the state of Rhode Island. And for what reason? Is there any, you know, anything that history shows? I mean, Rhode Island was kind of formed to be a more enlightened version of Massachusetts, if I have my history correct. I mean, Roger Williams was looking to... Uh, move up a level, say, in higher awareness. This is true. This is true. But the mortality rate, especially among young people, was so great in past centuries. And medical science at the time had really no explanation, no cure for this. People didn't know about germs or how disease contagion was carried. And so people basically turned to their superstitions and folklore Mm -hmm. and folk remedies, which sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. And what are some of these uh, incidents that would take place that would, you know, be constru- misconstrued as vampires? Well, what, like what would they be like today that we would know them as? Any any disease which would waste away the body, say uh, a cancer or, although we don't hear about it as much today, tuberculosis, although it is making a comeback because mm-hmm. there is a strain that's more resistant. Uh, tuberculosis, which was called consumption at the time because it tended to consume the body. Uh, any disease like that, which was a, a wasting disease where the people's vital forces seem to be drained away. And, and so if, I mean, would it be a matter of they would make a you know just make an assumption that there was something wrong with them something cursing them or was it just easier to to blame somebody else for their problem i mean was it more of what society deemed as the cause or more what the individual deemed as the cause is what i'm trying to get to i think it was more that people were desperate when they had no answers when a loved one was suffering when they were losing a loved one you know a parent will do anything to save a child. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where these people were coming from. It's easy to look upon them as very superstitious. Oh, what a ghoulish practice they actually did by believing in, in vampires that were rising from the graves at night and uh, draining the vital forces of the living. But uh, when when you're faced with that, when it's a desperate situation like that, I can't really blame them. And I, I'm sure I would have believed the same exact thing if I were in their position. But it's interesting that you know the, the idea of the undead 
uh, was so prevalent because we, they had such a rudimentary understanding of what death is. I mean, it was pretty much, I, I would assume, uh, not even knowing really the historical time, uh, what they used for such measures, but, you know, check to see if they're breathing, check to see if there's a pulse, listen for a heartbeat, that type of, you know, diagnosis. Uh, they probably didn't have anything much more advanced than that. And as we know now, there's, there are diseases where a faint pulse, a faint heartbeat is, is a result. Um, back then, they also used to bury people in coffins that had a tube that would go up to the surface because, you're right, they weren't able to determine if a person was truly dead. One of the other things that they used to do is leave a person lying in state for at least two days to ensure that they didn't recover from whatever ailment they may have had. They still do that to this day. Before you're cremated, you have to wait 48 hours before the body is allowed to be cremated to ensure that the person is truly dead. So is that maybe what a lot of this, a lot of these superstitions came about from was that, you know, they would assume someone had passed on when they really hadn't? That could account for some of it, but it was a very, very widespread belief. Similar to European belief, but not exact. I mean, in Europe, if they disinterred a body and the body was not completely decayed, that was sure a sign that a vampire was at work. And when a body begins to decompose, sometimes if the chin is not strapped, the mouth will come open and the uh, tongue will tend to protrude. So it became a common belief in Europe that vampires were not draining the blood from the living through fangs. They were using their tongue. They had a little stinger in the back of their tongue, it was believed, that they used because the tongue was protruding. So that's what the vampire was using. I mean, in terms of uh, the, the colonial times and even today American vampires, what is a lot of our understanding a lot of our belief in vampires related to is it a european notion that came over or is it you know kind of combined with i know that there's a, a similar uh character to the vampire in native american lore mm-hmm. uh, is this kind of like a merging of those or are we pretty close to the european idea i think it's closer to the european idea i mean the native americans did have a sort of belief but the way it was practiced in new england is very very similar to the new england belief um uh Interestingly, uh, incorruptibles, like a saint, would not de- decompose. The body of a saint would not decompose. The same way with a um, body of a, of a vampire in New England. If somebody did not show signs of decay that were natural, it was naturally assumed that they were a vampire and they were feeding off the life forces, not necessarily just the blood, but the life forces in, g- in general of sleeping relatives. And Matt, maybe you can back me up a little bit on this and let me know if I'm off base, but don't bodies decompose uh, not based on anything other than you know the the temperature the you know, there's a number of yeah, factors that there's physiological factors that would determine that it's not necessarily that you know you can open up a, a, a coffin and know that somebody should have been decomposed to this point yeah, the biggest factor actually believe it or not is the availability of oxygen okay oxygen so. is one of the primary uh ingredients used by most what's known as aerobic or air breathing bacteria which is what breaks down the body there are other uh microbes in a uh, oxygen-free environment called anaerobes or anaerobic bacteria that also break it down too but it takes a lot longer so there is no general rule of thumb for how fast the body should decompose just a combination of the relative availability of oxygen and uh temperature Right, the conditions when a body was buried, uh, even a person's uh, body chemistry will affect it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well now, let's get into some of the actual 
you know, claims of vampires, uh, aside from the possibility of how, how they could occur. But, I mean, what was it that would determine whether or not somebody was a vampire? What got them pinpointed as a vampire? Were these, was there a culture, a vampire culture like there was today, uh, a darker culture that might have gotten singled out? Or was it just when these things would arise, blame a vampire and then worry about who the vampire is later on? Interestingly, unlike vampire cults of today, it didn't usually involve anyone who was living. They were always the victims. It was the deceased that the vampire spirit inhabited. That's what was believed. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it was uh, quite a different notion of what I was told when I was younger because I would hear these stories. In fact, uh, the first person I heard them from was my mother, that we actually had a couple of people in Rhode Island in the past century that were considered to be vampires. And... um, but it was only after they were dead that they were suspected of actually being uh, a vampire themselves. Because maybe, you know, with the 1930s, with the prominence of both Dracula oh, and yes, other vampire yeah. films, it's kind of changed the notion of, of the vampire as, you know, the creepy guy that lives in the house in the corner can be considered a vampire. Whereas I know that in the past, like you said, it was more something that there was nobody that you could say was the vampire. You know what I mean? Yes. And... Maybe it's just you know the more modern day culture that's making me think that, but you know uh, you know you see a film like Interview with the Vampire, which as as much as it is fiction, does take into a lot of account you know what the times were back then, and there were people that could be viewed as vampires. So I, I just want to make sure that there wasn't a incident like you know with the Salem witches where people were being identified right. and and well misidentified as vampires and being. You know, social outcasts. Right. Interestingly, that analogy has been made before, but uh, basically the suspected vampires were already deceased. They weren't living. It it wasn't like, gee, I think this person's a vampire while they're alive. It's after they were dead, basically. So they just waited until after you'd passed on to attach that stigma to you. Exactly, yes. And was there a, a cure for vampires back then? I mean, now... Through Hollywood, we have the stake through the heart and mm-hmm. uh, the, hoping for sunup to come before uh, the, the vampire gets you. Was there a certain practiced you know, uh, vampire cures that they would use? Yes, a certain type of exorcism was performed where certain internal organs, vital organs, especially the heart, would be removed. The corpse had to be disrupted in some way to render it incapable of attacking further or harboring a vampire spirit. So most often... The practice was remove the heart, perhaps some other vital organs, burn them, reduce them to ashes, and then rebury the body. That was supposed to be the cure-all, and sometimes it did seem to work, sometimes it didn't, depending on the surviving family members. And how much of the uh, legends and lore of today were true back then? For example, if you were attacked by a vampire, did you become a vampire? It was considered you might be. Mm-hmm. You you might have this uh, spirit in you, but mostly it was one particular person, individual they were looking for. If they found that person, they destroyed the body. They pretty much hoped and prayed the problem was over. Because you know it's it's kind of evolved now into where if you know you kill the head vampire that infected all the other people who are now vampires, they all get cured. You know, I mean the the legend has kind of. Uh, expanded over the years and it's just important to narrow the focus to exactly what it was that people believed in new england at that time so yes i think we have a call here on the line let's uh check it out good evening you're on spooky south coast how you doing hi how you doing all right how are you okay i'm just curious why this is a science i'm curious why um no to the to the uh 
professor. I'm curious what prompted you and why you why you use equipment and computers.com. Like, why are you talking about demons? What, did you have a personal experience? Is there um, a reason or is it just a study? I, um, I'm curious to know what makes you what makes you so knowledgeable. I can't say that. I, can, I don't know, but I I called last week. It was the first time, or the week before, first time I've ever heard the show, and I just wanted to relate an experience that I had, and that I've always, even when I was a little girl, because of lack of knowing how to say anything else. I've all I've always said I see air I see air and of course adults would laugh at me but I've always even now I can feel movements around me I see things I just always know there's something going on around me I never found anything malevolent even when I had the the brush when I lived in Captain Allen's house mm-hmm. and I called I called him Al you remember me I told you if he could put on the lights why can't he clean house right yes. it isn't like I'm I don't think I'm crazy. I don't think I'm anything like that. It's just simply true. It's simply true. I have my experience. When my experiences have never been asked for. I have no interest in this subject. No, just simply things that have happened that I have no other. I'm very skeptical. No other explanations for. Believe me, I I try to like delete explanations. Anything I can explain. Okay. If if you want, I don't have extensive reading habits on it. Nothing like that. I just know that there's other things and other, well, other things, whatever it is, entities, whatever you want to call it, lack of better words, whatever it is, there are things, I just know it. Well, that's what I think. I think that you have a, a sensitivity that um, some people do have and they don't quite understand it. I mean, I myself don't have it, but I, I know plenty of people that do have that sensibility. They they have a it's better... It's just natural. Yeah, it's better... It's a, ha- that, that I just am aware of my whole life, bit, and I ignore it. You're a little and bit more understanding of the world than the rest of us are. You have a little demons, bit closer connection why does to he it. say demonology? I mean, don't, don't, I have felt that... Um, I have felt good presence that has helped me at times. I, it has, like, just... For no, again, without no um, explicable reason, times, like, when you think, like, you, there's something you cannot do, you can't go... You can't go on, for whether it's inwardly or outwardly, and you get like a little push. That's all I can call it is a push. Well, and yeah. I just don't understand why it's de- demons. Matter of fact, I call my girlfriend the demon because she keeps me up all night. <laughs> keeps me out all night. I call her the demon. Well, uh, if you want, real quick, we can just go around the table and, and people can explain. Yes, their explain to me. Explain to me why you're so knowledgeable and what your experiences are. Well, I myself, uh, the only thing that makes me knowledgeable is that I have developed an interest in the subject due to personal experiences. Uh, what were I, your personal experiences? When, when I was younger, much, much younger, I had uh, some issues when I was younger with uh, feeling like I was being visited in the night by different entities. Good or bad? Um, bad. But then again, I have also come to realize that I have suffered from some sleep issues during my entire life. So, right. I mean, it is possible that that could be explained. But when I was uh, a teenager, I did have uh, an aunt and uncle that lived in a haunted home. And we experienced uh, some pretty interesting phenomena while they lived there, such as faucets turning on and off by themselves. Right, like the glass, like the fish, like the fishbowl, like I had. I've had experiences. Similar experiences, I mean, except, uh, you know, we did a little bit of research on it and talked to some of the neighbors, and it turns out it was a little bit beyond just that home. Uh, to the entire neighborhood, and so it, it, yeah, right next door actually. 
So it did make me um, aware of the fact that this is out there and that it does exist, and it made me open my mind a little bit to well, the possibility. Well, your mind should be open. Everybody's oh, it, mind should be open to whatever. Well, That's I mean, like, as, as a teenager, though, you don't really want to talk about this. No, stuff. of course. I never want you to talk about any of this either, but, like, because I have always I've seen air, I would call it, <laughs> right? Just like when I was a kid. I see air. I, well, I see air. Don't you see that? Don't you, you see that? You're probably seeing ours and in, in, in different, you know, different... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not ours, but uh, I just see uh, energies, like, different energies. Oh, yeah, that's right. That there are other things. To, uh, I don't know what it is. I have no idea. I, I, okay, I think but Matt there Moniz are other is, things uh, around me all the time. Matt Moniz has had a little bit more experience with me staring the paranormal in the face um, for about 20 years now. I have yeah, no about. evidence. I want to know. I want. I want to know why. I want to know why. Well, he'll he'll tell you uh, what his experiences are. Yes, I'm interested. What do you want to know about? <laughs> what do I want to know about? I want to know what prompted you. I want to know, you know, why is this a professor? Yes. Well, we we call him the you professor. Can, is they it? call me the professor. It's tongue in cheek when we well, call him the professor. Well, you have a syllabus. You teach a course, so. Well, that's Keith that teaches no, that's the course. Keith. Well, where's he? He is right here as well. I'm right, I'm right next well, to you. Well, if you want to hear Keith's experiences, get ready. Yes, uh, I do. I want to know what prompted you. I want to know if it's from personal, personal like, experience. I want to know, you know, like, I just want to know. Well, my personal experiences began when I was very young. My brother and I grew up in a, quote, haunted house. But when I say haunted, I don't mean it was the Amityville horror. I mean, every once in a while, things would happen that we simply couldn't explain. Uh, my parents couldn't explain. Precisely. I understand. Yeah. I know you don't mean haunted like spooky world. Right, and stuff. right. But, things, you know, phenomena was happening, and it was, was out of the, or, the normal uh, everyday experiences. There were things you just couldn't explain rationally at least Precisely. at the time yeah right. and so my brother over the years of course uh developed a passion to try to analyze this to try to capture some evidence of it and and maybe show other people because believe me how can you do that how can you do that well when we were very young a lot of people thought we were crazy you even mentioned this you even mentioned the history of it of uh, people studying this we were called crazy and um i know matt's nodding he knows exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> he's been through it too but uh yeah uh you want to be able to analyze data so you can you can have something to show and, and none of us know have all the answers obviously but we knew enough that there was something else out there and that's how our passion developed i, I agree with you i agree yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that i i realize that like you know we're not all that fire report and i realize there's plenty we don't know and um do you have a do you have a computer, ma'am? No, I don't. They're the bane of my existence. I you know, I don't I know how to work one and my son is wanting to give me a laptop. I mean it's not like I can't I, I don't I don't like them. I just live life rather because than like watch it. It, it. The interesting thing is, uh until I realized that this whole world was out there to explore on the internet, I didn't realize that there was so much evidence that people had captured and shared on the internet. I mean, uh from even Matt Moniz captured a a, a spirit on film. Uh, just a couple months ago, and we've captured uh, some EVPs out in the cemetery. And for groups that go out all the time, such as Near and Taps, they go out all the time and experience this stuff. And they've and this is this is like this isn't just theory. This is empirical. You have empirical evidence. That's what you're telling me. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll let Keith and Matt make the determination as to what is what is evidence and what isn't. Because not that I need evidence, because mm -hmm. I don't. I'm not like you. I, it's not like I know what you know. I'm not even claiming to. I have. I have no proof. I have nothing. I just simply know. It's just I don't ask for I haven't but, read anything on it. It's just experiences that are true. But just because you know, you still like to have the evidence to, 
you know, to, to back it up. And, and I to... trust my instincts. I'm not crazy. It's not like I'm a nut because I'm not a nut. Oh, hardly. You know? It's like I, I just obviously know because it simply happened. That's it, all. Things have there, simply happened. It's there can't just... be anything crazy about willing to accept that there is something beyond yourself and that oh i know that you know that we are you know just as insects and animals are part of our world we're part of something else's world good thing they're small they're like monsters or dinosaurs good thing we can step on them well we're going to get to that actually in the second hour well, i have one other thing to say as far sure, as vampires i mean i realize we have about everything not, not, a lot of it comes about down two to minutes, the blood just to let you know all right a lot of it comes down to the blood which is you know they take the property and so forth they were healers midwives so forth i understand that vampires though it's like to me I, I i have no thought about that at all i actually think that you know if you if you uh believe in something have so much faith in something it's bound to hurt you anyway you know it's like um anything will suck you dry the whole world's a vampire if you let it be in actuality but as far as that i can't say that it's i don't have any beliefs at all i just simply am aware and, and I was just curious to know, you know, I'd like to know more about the course and if it's free and how much. The course is uh, it's $35 for non-members of South Coast Learning and $25 for members. Uh, and you can, uh, I don't have the phone number handy with me, Keith. You don't have the number for South Coast Learning, do you? I, it's like I'm not going to pay $35 to begin with, to be honest with you. I just wanted somebody to... I guess well, I want to just confirmation the, that the um, evidence that they'll yeah, show you other is people worth have it. had uh, have had real experiences. You know, I don't care if it's on camera. I don't care if you know what kind of um, equipment is involved. Just that that it started with like what the, what the prompting was that there was two experiences. It's not just me well, what, that knows there are yeah. other things around you. You can visit our website at nearparanormal.com and we can compare notes. You know, you feel, have, feel free to contact do us. Do you have any? Um, like literature, something you can send me because I don't have a computer. We have a lot of recommended literature on our site, and I invite you to look it over. Please I don't click. have a computer. You know what, well, we'll, we're, we're coming up on the, on the news break well, here. Are you, you're a Fairhaven resident? or a, Yes, I am. Okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put together a list of books uh, that they have at the Fairhaven Library, if Thank that'll you. help. And then you can check out uh, some of the stuff they have there. And, you know, it's a way to, to read up on the subject, and you don't have to spend any money or anything. How's that sound? Peace. All right. We are coming up on the CBS News, and then on the other side, we'll talk The Week in Weird. We'll get back into more about New England vampire First legends and more of your calls. Stay tuned. And sports. This is WBSM New Bedford, Citadel Broadcasting, AM 1420, WBSM. I'm knitting myself a hat. And I'm sewing up a head to wear it on. I'm making myself some mittens. And I'm stitching my fingers together to keep them warm inside. I'm knitting myself a sweater. To cover the body I'm wearing. Knitting, 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 knitting. Have you got an answer? No, but I've got a different name for the problem. Spooky South Coast. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. 
Taking a job there, Simon Staffan. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. A fascinating discussion tonight, as always, with Keith Johnson. We're talking New England vampire legends, and we'll get right back into that in a few minutes. Uh, before we get into the week and weird, we have uh, just some business to take care of here. Some uh, some thoughts and, and news bulletins out there for fans of Spooky South Coast. Uh, if you go to our message board, SpookySouthCoast.com, you'll see the Waverly Hills video that I referenced a little while ago that Matt Moniz and Joe Gonski captured at Waverly Hills of an apparition. Uh, now, as Matt said last week on the show, they sent that to the Mattingleys. Uh, they were very, very excited about that footage. Uh, I spoke to them via email earlier this week, and uh, it's definitely something unique uh, to what they've captured there. And so uh, a good friend of ours, Groovy Ghost Hunter, who uh, posts on our board, took some of the images from the video and cleaned them up a little bit with a positive and a negative image. So if you go on there under the uh, Waverly Hills video thread on the message board, you can see those photos, and it's a little bit clearer to see the, the figure that's in the background there. Also, a listener, Jay, sent an email to me earlier this week. Uh, he said he wanted to know if we had heard of any strange happenings in the Salters Point area. I uh, said so that they stayed out there on vacation in June, and they had some weird things going on. They'd love to see if there have been any other ghost stories in the South Dartmouth area. And I know we've talked about the UFO phenomena in Dartmouth uh, last week and in previous shows, uh, but if anybody knows of anything about Salters Point in particular or ghosts in the South Dartmouth area, uh, why don't you hop on our message boards on SpookySouthCoast.com, sign up, and you can share your stories with us there, and uh, we will let Jay know any that we get. You can also send us an email if you want to get all three of us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or, of course, Matt at SpookySouthCoast.com for the Silent Assassin. I'm Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and Matt Moniz is Science Advisor at SpookySouthCoast.com, because it wouldn't work if we had two Matts at Spooky there you go. And uh, also, from our good friend and guest, Christopher Balzano, who runs the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website. Wait a minute, let me get ready to do this right. What are we going to do now, Matt? We're going to do a joke, Matt? We're going to do a joke. Uh, got any gum? Okay, uh, from the home office at masscrossroads.com, the ten things that Christopher Balzano learned from watching Creature Double Feature growing up. Uh, number 10, Edgar Allan Poe would have been happier if he stayed in the Army. Thank you for the drum roll. Number 9, the guy with the pale face in the room is the bad guy. Number 8, the only way to get your child to do what you want to is to stand on his tail. Number 7, never fall in love with the peasant girl. She'll eventually break your heart, and chances are she is a vampire. Number 6, aliens look a lot like things found on Earth, only a lot bigger. Number 5, the butler and the maid are always in on it. Number four, radiation makes nice things go bad. Number three, every animal or insect will eventually get organized, aggressive, and try to take over the world. Number two, in a crisis situation, the smart guy will always die first, and the good-looking guy will live. And the number one thing that Christopher Balzano and all of us learned from growing up with Creature Double Feature, Vincent Price is not just the guy in the Michael Jackson song. So there you go. Thank you for that, Chris. And uh, uh, we urge you to check out his website, masscrossroads.com. It is the crossroads where reality and fantasy intersect. So, And so that uh, takes care of those few little items of business. Now it's time to get into something we call 
The Week in Weird. And VH1, the cable television channel VH1. You remember them. They used to play music videos once upon a time. Well, as part of their new uh, continuing process of celebrity, they have a new program coming out uh, about the paranormal, believe it or not. Jumping on the bandwagon, why don't you? This story comes from the Norwich, Connecticut Bulletin, written by Amy Lawson. The Connecticut Commission on Culture and Tourism has broken its silence about this week's filming of a VH1 reality show at the former Norwich State Hospital property. As first reported in the bulletin last Thursday, representatives from the commission, as well as production company 51 Minds Entertainment, uh, declined comment, citing a confidentiality agreement. Uh, however, they, they were there filming something. Uh, the, the bulletin was right on top of this uh, story, and uh, they have been doing some digging and some research. Uh, the show is an investigative reality series with celebrities that is being filmed for VH1, said Naomi Boluchnikov, a publicist for the network. Uh, previously, the network had said they didn't have enough information on the project to comment, but boxer Mia St. John, uh, according to the bulletin, posted on her website that she just finished shooting VH1's new reality show and that it's called Celebrity Paranormal Project. Uh, the show will supposedly air in October. So, uh, And according to VH1's website, it will begin airing on October, but representatives from VH1 would not confirm that the show was taped at the Norwich State Hospital. Uh, it does sound to me like, you know, as Matt Cost and I were talking about earlier, it sounds like uh, that old MTV show Fear, where they took a bunch of people that had no history of investigating the paranormal and shoved them into a, a haunted building with some rudimentary equipment and video cameras. So now they're taking that and they're combining that show with the surreal life. So I think we're going to get a bunch of uh, celebrities or maybe B-listers uh, trying to become amateur ghost hunters. Keith, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, with the explosion of the paranormal, it was only a matter of time before they started handing Sherman Helmsley an EMF detector and you know gave Vince Neil a, a video camera. Right, but it, you know it tends to get sensationalized <laughs> in the media too when you tend to do that. So. You know, as long as they can remain down to earth and grounded, it's fine. But uh, when you get every, every little bump in the night is, uh, you know, well, close up, close up, close uh, yeah, up. You know, they have to have, I think, uh, a seasoned paranormal investigator yeah. on board as a consultant, or else it just runs the risk of turning everything that you do and, and your many friends in the field, uh, you know, ridiculing. Exactly. And, and, and anything that VH1 does with a bunch of uh, half-hack celebrities on it ridicules whatever they're talking about so anyway that's my little rant about vh1 which you know used to be good when they played music uh matt moniz why don't we throw it to you this time all right this one comes from the bbc news a company that blasted the first tourist into uh orbit is offering future clients a chance to do a spacewalk space adventures says the optional excursion will cost 15 million on top of the 20 million it costs for the flight for that Private space explorers will get a one and a half hour accompanied extra vehicular activity or EVA outside the International Space Station, the ISS. The EVA would lengthen the stay on the ISS from 10 days to between 16 and 18 and would require additional training. Eric Anderson, president and CEO of Space Adventures, said they already had potential clients for the spacewalk. Those with enough money would get a chance to hang out outside the space station with a trained cosmonaut as a guide, he said. 
potential spacewalkers could blast off in 2007 or 2008. The following year, the firm plans to go on one stage further and launch the first commercial trip around the moon. The flight will cost an estimated $100 million. So very interesting. If you have the cash, uh, which, you know, I'm sure that most people do, $100 million laying around, uh, you can go out there and experience space for yourself. Now, the one problem that I have with this, I don't want to be the first guy. I don't want to be on that first flight. I've seen too many disaster movies and seen what can happen. I don't want to be on the uh, the Titanic of, uh, or, or even the Mayflower from uh, Air, Airplane 2. That was that was a trip to the moon, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So, again, if you, if you go on that trip and it works out, give me a call. Then I'll consider going, but uh, I don't want to be on the first flight. Matt Costa, uh, why don't you get a little weird on us here? This is from the Queen's Gazette. Uh, three women from Queens, New York, claiming to be psychics, were charged this week for fortune-telling. Sabrina, Sabrina Martell, Dorothy Miller, and Rose Miller were charged with fortune-telling, <clears throat> charged and arrested with fortune-telling, following an investigation in which undercover officers posed as clients interested in obtaining readings. Under New York State law, a person cannot hold himself or herself as a fortune-teller and claim to use occult powers to answer questions, give advice, or exercise evil spirits or curses, unless it is stated that the readings are done for enter- entertainment use only. In all three cases, it is, it is alleged that the women never stated nor were there any signs anywhere on the premises indicating that the services were for entertainment purposes. Martell has been charged with grand larceny, scheme to defraud, and fortune-telling. The Millers, who are not related, who have been each charged with petty larceny and fortune-telling. If convicted, Martell faces up to four years in prison, and the Millers each face up to one year in, what, one year in jail. Now, what was, what was that line again? Uh, they cannot claim to be fortunate. They cannot claim to... Off, they can't offer advice. They can't... Is that basically... They can't give advice or exercise evil spirits or curses. So you can answer questions, or even answer. Now I'm guessing that somewhere within the confines of the New York City Police Department, they must use psychics as part of their investigations. Same discretion could be used for lawyers. They got to pass a bar, right? That's true. But uh, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that I've heard of cases where the New York uh, Police Department used psychics uh, to help get a break in cases. So it's uh, kind of two-faced. To say that, you know, you can't do it if it's for profit, but it's okay if you're doing it for the police. Speaking of two faces, from NBC10.com in Philadelphia, a kitten has been born with two faces, and veterinarians don't understand why. The kitten was born Wednesday morning in Ohio. It has two mouths that meow in unison, two noses, and four eyes that have not opened yet. Well, because it's a newborn, give it a few days. The little boy who owns the cat said he hasn't decided on a name for the kitten yet, but said he wants to name it Tiger. My recommendation is he names it Tiger Tiger. Two other kittens were in the same litter, but they are normal. Veterinarians say this occurrence is very rare, but the kitten could be just fine. It has already begun nursing just like the other kittens in the litter. Just, you know, twice as hungry. There's a link to a photo of the two-faced cat on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, and you got to see it. It is, uh, it is a two-faced cat. I mean, my cat's two-faced because, you know, I'll feed him, and then he'll go back out and tell my wife that he wasn't fed, so she'll feed him again, but that's a different kind of two faces. All right, real quick, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us about the Andrea Yates case? 
All right. Uh, this is from uh, Chuck Shepard on uh, News of the Weird. Uh, the insanity defense law for the state of Texas requires that a delusional person acting under the orders from God be judged not guilty by reason of insanity. However, a similar person acting under the orders from Satan is to be considered sane, according to prominent forensic psychiatrist uh, Park, I believe it's Dietz, in a uh, June USA Today story. The line was drawn as a result of a case uh, involving Andrea Yates, who drowned her kids in Texas under the command of Satan. She told jurors she was possessed by the devil and that by executing her, they'd be killing him as well. Thus, Dietz believed that Yates knew that drowning her kids upon command of someone without moral authority, such as Satan, was wrong, and thus that she did not qualify for insanity law protection. Dietz later concluded that the opposite in another Texas child-killing case, because God had supposedly assured that the mother and that the kids would be better off dead. So there you have it, a little bit of uh, paranormal happenings there in that case down in Florida. So, And Matt, I'm mean, sorry, down in Texas. We're back to two-faced again? Well, it is a little bit strange that you know one can operate as insanity plea and one can't. Uh, especially when lawyers, as you just uh, put out a kind word for, will just instruct their client to say, well, don't tell them it was God, tell them it was Satan. Speaking of Satan. Uh, not that your story relates to Satan, but just your evil. Ah. Okay. From the Associated Press in Orlando, Florida, a cruise ship that suddenly rolled to one side will depart on a new voyage this weekend despite the mystery over what caused the accident that threw passengers across the deck and seriously injured 20 people off the Florida coast. The Crown Princess left Florida on Thursday for New York, where it was scheduled to, to depart for another Caribbean, another Caribbean, Caribbean trip. Either way. Investigators from the Coast Guard and National Transportation Safety Board plan to go along to monitor, monitor the voyage. The Crown Princess rolled 15 degrees to the right Tuesday, about 11 and a half miles off Port Canaveral, throwing passengers, TV sets, and other objects against deck, the deck and walls. The ship slowly came back up after about 30 to 40 seconds, then returned to port. The ship was sailing through calm seas, and there was no indication that a rogue wave or foul play contributed to the roll, nor did investigators find any ongoing mechanical problems. At the time of the accident, the ship was on autopilot and its captain was away from the bridge. The trip from Florida to New York will determine whether the ship can travel again with passengers. Although the crew does not need Coast Guard clearance for another voyage, the port could hold the vessel if investigators determine it unsafe. There's got to be a morning after. (laughs) That's beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Well, there you have it, the Week and Weird which we bring to you every week here on Spooky South Coast. And if you go to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board, and uh, you can go to the Week and Weird thread and insert your own stories there that you find around the web. We welcome it, and if we use your story and we remember to, we will give you credit. So we will be right back in a few moments with Keith Johnson discussing New England vampire legends, and, of course, we welcome your phone calls, 508-996-0500, 508 We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. 
She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. She's vampire, Nosferatu. These creatures do not die like the bee after the first sting, but instead grow strong. Around the lake tonight. And become immortal once infected by another Nosferatu. Around the lake tonight. So my friends, we fight not one beast, but the legions that go on age after age after age, feeding on the blood of the living. Back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa working his magic, as usual. And uh, Matt Money is on the other side, providing the science. And uh, I have a question for you, Matt Costa, if uh, if you're not too busy. Sure. All right. Now, so you agree with me that that song's about vampires? It's one theory. Or, or you just played that because I've espoused you many times that I think that song's about vampires. You're not the only one. Okay. So. Well, yes, I, I definitely think that that's what it's about. The uh, the toadies. So, I recommend it. I do. So, uh, we are talking about New England vampire legends with Keith Johnson. You can check out his website, nearparanormal.com, N-E-A-R, paranormal.com. And, uh, of course, you can also sign up for his class next Friday night at the South Coast Learning Building in New Bedford. Uh, $35 to register for non-members, 25 for members. Well worth it. Uh, just not only, I mean, we talk about the uh, education that you will get in the two-hour period about the paranormal and the evidence they present, but the fact that you can meet up with other paranormal investigators. Uh, maybe you want to get out there in the field. Maybe you don't feel comfortable with your level of experience. You can catch another group that's still in the beginning stages, uh, or you can hook up with you know, a group that is uh, long established and has the equipment and can train you on the equipment. So there's plenty of networking to be done. And... It's a chance to go and talk about your experiences with people that have experienced similar things and realize, no, you're not crazy. Well, unless you're us, and then, you know, people are just telling you that to be kind. So we are talking about New England vampires. And, of course, Keith, uh, coming from Rhode Island, you have one of the most famous New England vampires in your state's history, uh, Mercy Brown. Oh, yes, Mercy Brown, my personal favorite. And... Why don't we, for those unfamiliar, because you know we're we're worldwide here now. Why don't you tell some people that might be unfamiliar about Mercy Brown and and that you know accusation? Right. Well, Mercy Brown was actually one of the two I first heard about, and I became fascinated by this that this had actually happened that this person had really lived. And uh, of course, I heard the legend and everything that uh, she became obsessed with uh, vampirism, with drinking blood at a young age, and that she died as a teenager and that uh, sometime later she was unearthed and perfectly preserved when uh, they opened her casket. And this is, this is the story as I heard it. But um, after a while, of course, I'd heard about Nellie Vaughan, too, which was supposed to be a similar incident. After a while, I got so intrigued by this that I just I had to do some researching on myself, and mm-hmm. I found out that some of it was actually based upon fact. Some of it was legend, of course, but as legends are, there's always some truth involved. And, um, of course, then uh, there was Dr. Michael E. Bell, who began doing research into this, and uh, he's... He has done so much research into this. Is or if I plug his book? Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he has written a book. It's called Food for the Dead on the Trail of New England's Vampires. And if you want the, the history, this, this is the, um, I would say that he's the authority on it. 
you get uh, so much detail on the actual history of the New England vampires. And so if you want detail, I would recommend that book. You can uh, go to his site at foodforthedead.com and read all about him and about New England vampires. But Mercy Brown, when I started doing research on her, and uh, I found out that um, actually a blight hit the family the Brown family who lived in Exeter, Rhode Island. Now, this is rather late. This is in the late 1800s that Mm -hmm. this happened. In 1883, the wife of farmer and horse trader George Brown died of consumption, wasted away, and uh, died in her 30s. Her daughter, who was only 20 years old, Mary Olive Brown, died six months later in 1884. Uh, Nothing else happened for several years until the brother began to uh, get sick. In fact, he was the only son of um, George Brown. And, of course, he was a very strong, very strapping, healthy young man, and he had been recently married. When he began to show signs of consumption, he went to a doctor. He didn't just automatically assume that it was uh, some spiritual disease. In fact, uh, George Brown and his family kind of shied away from this notion because it was rather late date. And he was sent by his physician, uh, Edwin Brown, the son, to Colorado Springs to recover. He and his young wife went there. And for a while he did begin to recover. However, unfortunately, he had a relapse. Then his 19-year-old sister, Mercy Lena. In my research, I found that she actually did not prefer the name Mercy. She herself was known as Lena Brown. But we know her as Mercy Lena Brown today. She came down with consumption, uh, the galloping kind of consumption, or tuberculosis, it was known as consumption at the the time. And she wasted away very quickly. She died of this disease in January, January 17th in 1892. Mm -hmm. And because it was a very cold winter, she was put in the holding crypt in the Exeter Cemetery, which was known as Shrub Hill Cemetery at the time, um, next to the Baptist Church there. Now, meanwhile, her brother came back, and by this time, of course, all the farmers then belonged to a local grange, and the grandmaster of the grange had had some experience with this. His daughter, Ruth Ellen Rose, had died of consumption and was, in fact, disinterred in the year 1874, so it's very likely that he gave this advice to George Brown. Family members and friends got together, even though he was not a believer in this. He was desperate to save his son. Um, so when his son returned, George Brown did agree to exhumations of his family members. They, what was different about this is they also had the county medical examiner, Dr. Harold Metcalf, in on this. He actually participated. He himself was not a believer in vampires, but because he was paid to do it and uh, to oversee what was going on, he did attend the exhumations. Now, um, the first to be exhumed was the body of Mary Eliza Brown, been dead several years. Uh, She was basically in a mummified state. Some of the flesh and muscles still existed, but basically her heart was just a lump of dried flesh, so she obviously was not the vampire. Next, Mary Olive was exhumed. She had gone completely to a skeleton except with a very long growth of hair. And the next to be taken out, she still wasn't buried yet, was Mary um, was Mercy Brown, rather, Mercy Lena Brown, and she was taken out of the holding crypt. Now, this was two months after she had been buried to the day, and so they took her out on March 17, 1892. They got a shock when they saw her remarkable state of preservation. 
Not only was she perfectly preserved, but one of the onlookers reported that she had actually turned over into a sleeping position in her grave, in her coffin. Wow. And so Dr. Metcalf himself said there's really nothing usual about her state of decomposition. And after all, she was buried in the two coldest months of the year, or in the holding crypt uh, the two coldest months of the year. But he actually performed the autopsy on her right there in the cemetery, where and um, well, you think of this as really happening, that uh, there were 12 men there, and uh, contrary to what uh, many stories say, George Brown was not present for this. But uh, this young 19-year-old woman who was uh, a member of the uh, Baptist church there in Exeter, she had her burial shroud removed, completely naked, stripped naked, and uh, dissected right in front of these men. Her heart was removed. It contained some partially coagulated blood. Uh, again, Dr. Metcalf said there's nothing unusual to this. Her liver was removed along with her lungs. She did show signs of tuberculosis. Um, there was some quality of blood in the liver as well. When, he, when Dr. Metcalf turned it over, some blood dripped out. Then he left, but the people there were convinced this is an incorruptible, the vampire spirit resides in her. Mm-hmm. She's the one who's been coming at night, sucking the living life forces from her brother. In a desperate effort to save her brother's life, they burned her heart, liver, and lungs on a nearby rock. You can still see the rock today in that cemetery where it, is, uh, where it was allegedly burned. And they fed the ashes to her brother, in his medicine. Her brother was pretty far gone at the time, and uh, her father consented to this because he was desperate to save his child. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't work because he died less than two months later, on May 2nd of 1892. However, since no more deaths occurred in the family, they believed that they'd done the right thing and the cure worked. However... They just took a little too long to get... Exactly, exactly. While this was going on, because Dr. Harold Metcalf, the uh, respected county medical examiner, was involved, it leaked out to the Providence Journal, first to the local Gazette and then to the Providence Journal, and it basically made them out to be a bunch of superstitious fools living out there in Exeter. How could they do such a barbaric practice? Why is this going on? Yes, in 1892. And uh, so it got very, very famous, and that's actually the case that put a stop to it. Bram Stoker actually used the Mercy Brown case in Dracula for reference. When he died in the year 1912, his wife was looking through his papers, and uh, she did find a clipping from a New York paper referring to the Mercy Brown case. So obviously he had done research on the Mercy Brown case. Because I understand uh, when Stoker was compiling all the information for the book, I mean, he did exhaustive research oh, yes, he on did. vampires. I mean, it wasn't just... You know, he made up a lot of these legends and, and, and things that we use today when discussing vampires. This was stuff that he accumulated from different reports around the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think we have a call here. might be about Mercy Brown. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hey, guys. How are y'all doing? Good. How are you? Good. It's Ashley from Texas. Right, nice to hear from you. Oh, nice to hear from you guys or listen to you guys a little bit. I don't get to hear you live, so. Yeah, she has to settle for the next day. You got it. It's all right. It's worth it. Well, I know Mondays that you, are my favorite day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you've been uh, trying to get in touch with Keith. Oh, yes. And he's here with us, so well, say hi, hi to Keith. I know that's why I called in. I wanted to call in and say hi. Um, hi, actually, Ashley. <laughs> how are you doing? Good. Good to hear from you. Good to hear you, too. Um, actually, my car has been having all sorts of problems. So I've been like spending the next past two weeks in the, with my car in the shop nonstop. So Sounds familiar. I haven't really had much of time to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, I just wanted to call in and uh, say hi to you guys and 
um, that I love the show and don't really have much to report or anything. I just wanted well, to call and also are, see... Things are going okay with you? Uh, they're getting a lot better, yes. Okay. And um, yeah, of, I was, and also wanted to call and see when you guys are going to finally get those Silent Assassin t-shirts up, because I really want one. <laughs> Maybe your car could use a blessing, do you think? You know what? It's funny that you say that because it actually, <laughs> all of my car, we have been investigating to see whether or not it's a lemon. But, like, it's really funny that you say it because, like, for the past week, um, whenever I'm driving, like, my doors will randomly unlock, the lights will go off and on. And um, I've, I'm on the positive, it's probably just an electrical thing. But it's really funny because all my friends are like, your car is possessed well, <laughs> or something. You know, we're talking about uh, New England vampires tonight and uh, the cemetery in the. Um case we were just talking about, the Mercy Brown case. I've known people that uh, claim to have driven in there. Suddenly their their car alarm will go off or the locks will start opening and closing and things will just go haywire until they pull out of the cemetery. Then everything will be okay again. So maybe there could be something to that. Yeah, probably connected to me though, so that kind of sinks. Well, <laughs> Any car you I drive will happen. Following you around, yeah. Well, we'll say some prayers for you as well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. My car needs it bad. <laughs> okay. All right, well, thank you for checking in and, uh, and uh, I guess enjoy Sunday. Because <laughs> the, <laughs> the next time you're here, I said it'll be Sunday. So. Oh, you got it. Right. All right, you guys. Have a good night. Thanks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. She, uh, she's very, very uh, excitable, Ashley is. <laughs> yeah, very enthused. Yeah, she's uh, been suffering some some paranormal circumstances of her own, which she shared yes. on our message board. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody would like to read her story and see if maybe you have some advice to offer her, mm-hmm. and and so uh, back on the subject of New England vampires, as you said, the Mercy Brown case happened very late, um, but then in the 1930s, as the Dracula film hit, I mean the book hit what in the 1880s, 1897 was published, yeah, and, and so you know there was. Uh, Renewed interest in vampires, I'm sure, following the book and definitely following the original film. Yes. Was there any more talk of vampires in New England, or was it kind of just by that point it was, you know, you'd get an isolated incident here and there? Basically, it it was legend, and uh, some people claim, they still claim to have seen strange floating blue lights in the... uh, Exeter Cemetery next to Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. I've never seen anything unusual there myself, Mm -hmm. personally, but there are people who claim to have witnessed this. However, interest was renewed recently, especially um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s with the Nellie Vaughan case, which was actually a case of mistaken identity. Uh, There is a young woman buried in West Greenwich, Rhode Island, in a... uh, isolated cemetery and ironically apparently some people were searching for mercy brown and this is around the time of the late 60s early 1970s and they came to the wrong cemetery i mean it's located off of 102 but they went in the wrong direction they went down plain meaning house road they came to the cemetery they searched through it they found a 19 year old girl which fit the age of mercy brown when she Mm -hmm. died uh she had uh, died very young and what was really cueing them in was the inscription on her headstone, which read, I am waiting and watching for you. And they were sure, wow, this is our girl. We found our girl. I mean, obviously, this was put on because she was a vampire. And it actually is uh, an epitaph, which which is um, a frequent phrase used for a young person or a child at the time who has died much too young, is I am waiting and watching for you from heaven. Yeah, that's what I would, I mean. Right. Right, but that's not, not looking for a vampire, that would right, be what I would yeah. assume. But if I'm looking for a vampire, I can see the other side of it. Right. And there is this poor cemetery. There's been so much 
damage and vandalism done over the years. And uh, people claim that they've seen her floating over the, the grave. They've seen this and that. There, there are numerous, numerous reports of people being scratched, touched, and it may may well be. But I don't think it's Nellie Vaughn herself. It may be simply because people have brought all this negative energy yeah. in through uh, cult activity and vandalism. Uh, perhaps the most disgraceful act of vandalism there is that uh, a grave was once unearthed there and the body pulled out. Uh, it was a, a deceased gentleman of the town and a pack of cigarettes was placed in one hand, a beer in the other. I mean, it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. And a group of thrill seekers were out on Halloween night uh, some years ago, in 1993, I believe it was, looking for a thrill. They came to the cemetery and that's what they found. Well, I guess they got it. Right. They they sure did, yes. But unfortunately, I mean, you hear too many cases, just general vandalism at all in in a cemetery. And, you know, these are respected areas that uh, should be shown proper reverence. And and I don't think every cemetery is haunted, but I do think that the people who uh, do this type of activity in those places do have something that follows them home and they get what they deserve. Very possible. Now, just to take a step back, vampire... The whole reason the vampire myth exists is because there's always been this type of character in all kinds of folklore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we've learned, there are certain people um, that do suck out the energy from other people. I mean, Yes, known as psychic vampires. Exactly. This is true, yes. And somehow that has gotten crossed in with the uh, like the vampires of today, The like we said at the top of the show, the cults of today. Uh, people who are vampires not by... You know any kind of malevolence, but just due to lifestyle. Yes, and the fact that they will drink blood as a way to rejuvenate themselves. Um, and what? How how do these vampire cults today uh, interact with this whole myth? Or are they should they be considered separate because they don't have that type of evilness to them? I think it's very separate. It's mm-hmm. a very separate connotation, and. Remember what we're talking about, that uh, the New England vampires of history were only considered such after mm-hmm. their demise. I mean, they, they were not alive to, um, to have to go through with the uh, mystique and connotation that had blighted their names. You know, fortunately for them, they didn't have to uh, live with this sort of persecution as, say, the Salem witches did. But uh, the vampire cults of today are very, very different. It's, it's, it's a social community. It is people who have adopted this lifestyle, sometimes by choice, sometimes they, they feel they're, they really don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. But uh, we must respect their belief as long as they're not intentionally harming any, anyone else, which usually they don't. Usually well, they don't. Generally, it goes totally against uh, what it is that they believe to harm someone else for their benefit. Exactly. Uh, they see themselves as, you know, like you said, as a, as a community. Right. And, you know, like... To, to attach this stigma to them, mm-hmm. uh, everybody's free to have their own beliefs. And just as today, you know, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't begrudge anybody the chance to practice the Wiccan religion. Right. And same thing with vampires. So it's just I just want to make sure that we mention that we do not con- uh, we do not condemn yeah condemn them. So mm-hmm. uh, there was a story that just came out, I believe, today or yesterday. Unfortunately. A lot of young kids are into this goth and, you know, the vampire type of mm-hmm. lifestyle. It's also become a, a source for predators to pick them up. There was a couple of young girls that were supposedly uh, lured to a cemetery by one of these predators and, I guess, was recently attacked. Well, that, 
you know, not directly related to vampires, mm-hmm. but I'm saying. But if we if we break it down, I mean, not that we want to psychoanalyze these these people, but I mean, a lot of these people are looking for acceptance into something, and they are. This is what they turn to, and so they are pretty trusting from the more experienced members of these communities. So, and unfortunately, there are people that will take advantage of that. Interestingly, in the early 1970s, again, there was a young woman, a teenager actually, I believe she resided in New Hampshire. She went, I won't use her real name, but she went by the name of Lilith. And what she would do is dress up in basically the Gothic-style garb, and she had an obsession with vampirism. She really felt that she needed this blood. And so what she would do is hang outside of historical cemeteries dressed like, um, you you know, really alluring, but like a goth chick, so to speak. And sooner sooner or later, some guy would come by, a teenage boy would come by, and they'd say, wow, look look at this, look at this. And they'd pull over, and uh, she'd lure them into the cemetery uh, with promises of sex or whatever, and, and she'd actually put the bite on them and draw blood, and she had done this Ooh. a number of times. I mean, talk about a dangerous lifestyle. I mean, you know, so, somehow she survived to tell about it, but um, she did eventually seek help, but um, I, I guess the last I knew she had joined some kind of, um, I guess, motorcycle gang, and I guess she was never heard of again. Not that she disappeared. She just went off with some people. No, yeah, she just dropped out of yeah, the line. Yeah, she's so just cruising speak. around. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, unfortunately, yeah, vampirism today, it does take into, you do have to take into account now with AIDS and other, you know, diseases that are communicated through the blood. Mm-hmm. It does totally change what it is that they do. Definitely. Uh, whether it be, you know, for their own replenishing, their own life energy, or uh, just to be part of the group. I mean, no matter what it is, there is that huge chance that they're taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as great as the chance of being a vampire in earlier times when, you know, stake through the heart. Right, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, and so we don't condone, uh, I mean, we don't condemn, I'm sorry, we don't condemn people if that's the lifestyle that they choose. In fact, it's actually quite interesting uh, because they are a tighter-knit community than you will find in a lot of these more accepted religions and accepted beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, the vampires of early colonial times were the result of Puritan hysteria, yes. as so much of this is. Mm-hmm. And is there any kind of um, historical monument, historical recognition for anyone who post-mortem was uh, believed to be a vampire? Is there any type of... Like we talked last week with Belinda Nash, who worked out a pardon for yes, Grace right. Sherwood. Is is there any after the fact type of, you know, wiping uh, wiping their name clear? Only I think in the fact of shared knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, such as I'm doing tonight, or uh, Michael Bell's book Food for the Dead is doing to to try to bring shed some light on the actual historical truth to that uh, these were actually very innocent people that never harmed a soul in their life, what we know of. And, of course, you know, there was the tale of uh, uh, Stuckley Tillinghast and his daughter in Exeter and uh, back in 1799 when he supposedly had a dream that half his orchard had died, half thrived, and one by one after his dream, his family members began uh, dying. His uh, daughter, Sarah, beautiful daughter, died at age 22. She was supposed to be a very, very lovely girl, very beloved throughout the town, well, her brothers and sisters began reporting that they were seeing her apparition coming into their rooms at night, sitting on their chest and uh, causing them pain when she sat on now, now, this is psychologically sound when you think about it because they've recently, they're bereaved over their sister. They're ill themselves. They equate themselves with their sister's illness. And they have pain and they, 
experience their sister sitting on their body where they have that pain. So we, we can see how this would be a psychological reality. And uh, the legend says that uh, half his family died, half his children died, 14 children, half of them died. Actually, um, only about three or four of them died mm-hmm. in, in reality. But uh, the, the story is based on truth. So, and of course, if you would like to find out more about New England vampire legends, uh, as you said, the book by Dr. Bell, uh, Food for the Dead. Yes. And uh, you can find that at local bookstores, on his website, foodforthedead.com, and at amazon.com, of course, where you can find just about every book. And, uh, and don't forget, next Friday night at South Coast Learning in New Bedford, you can take Keith's course, uh, Investigating the Paranormal. Is the yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go to southcoastlearning.org, you can sign up that way. You can also sign up on his site, nearparanormal.com, N-E-A-R, paranormal.com. And, of course, keep your eyes tuned for Ghosts or Near. Hopefully we can get it uh, here in the New Bedford area uh, as soon as they get the technology in place. And uh, we'll help you spread it well beyond that because... Everybody's listening uh, all over the world here, and I know they'd be anxious to see it each week. So, Thank you very much. We hope to distribute it. And, uh, and if anybody wants to get in contact with you about an investigation, they can email you through your website? Exactly. And uh, so check that out. And I know you have a new email address um, t- earlier today when I was emailing you. What is the new address? Sandra? <laughs> oh, uh he doesn't know the email address, so I will tell you. It's, it's new. We just got it. <laughs> it's ghostsarnear at inbox.com. Okay, so ch- you can get in touch with him that way. If uh, if you maybe need an investigation, if you're interested in learning a little bit more, if you want to keep up to date with, uh, with all the class information of where there will be other classes, again, if you miss your chance to take it this Friday, which hurry up and sign up now because space is limited, uh, Friday, July, um, Friday, Friday, October 13th, couldn't be a more perfect day for your second chance. And, of course, I, I have a feeling a lot of people want to take it two or three times. Matt, Matt, do you have anything you want to say? I haven't given you the opportunity. Do I ever? That's true. All right. Well, you know, next week we have a big show. Not right, who's next week? We have one of uh, Keith's colleagues from TAPS. Did I not tell you? No, I don't think you did. I'm pretty sure I I told you. We're going to have Ron Million, the gadget guy for TAPS. He creates all of their uh, different equipment that they use. Matt Moniz is very excited about this because he's already going to start commissioning him for some projects. All of the things him and I are going to be able to talk about. So we're going to have Ron in the studio. He's going to come up all the way from Long Island to visit with us, and uh, hopefully he'll bring some some of these gadgets with him, and we can see how they work, and uh, we'll tell you all about it. Also, joining us uh, for a few minutes anyway in that show will be David Chastain. So if you've been listening to the new Taps Power Radio Show, which we highly recommend it, uh, just search for Taps on PodcastAlley.com, and you'll find it. Uh, If you've been listening to that show, they mentioned David Chastain in this week's edition, uh, he is trying to come up with a program where investigators can, can tie all their equipment into one software program, and so they can try to gain everything across the board all at once. So we're going to have him on. We'll have him talk to Ron about the feasibility, and uh, we'll kick that around as well. So you don't want to miss that show. And uh, also next week we want to mention uh, for those people further down the Cape, you can check out the Capers Open Meeting on UFOs conducted by Keith Kessner, who was here uh, last week with us. So there's uh, that opportunity as well. It's a, it's a big night. You don't have anything you want to add in, Matt. How about we say happy, a big... Happy birthday to Al. Big happy birthday to Big Al, my father. It's his birthday, so... Oh, happy know. birthday, Al. And I'm, I'm sure he is uh, probably sleeping by now. Poor guy's worn out. So anyway, that'll about do it. Uh, so for Matt Costa, Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. Thank you to Keith and Sandra Johnson for joining us. Thank you. And we want you all to stay spooktacular.
Everyone is entitled to believe in what they want. Now, if, if they don't want to believe, that's all right, too. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. My fellow Americans, I would once again like to say that I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I did, however, go to SpookySouthCoast.com. Do like I do. All right, stay tuned here on WBSM. We have the CBS News coming up at the stroke of midnight. Then it will be Sunday, and uh, you will hear... Who's coming up? Lars, Lars, no, the troubleshooter, Tom Martino. That's right, the troubleshooter will be on to take all your calls about uh, consumer fraud and whatnot. And, uh, I heard him give away a computer once, so that was pretty interesting. So you, you don't want to miss that opportunity. So uh, before we go, I just got one question. Danny Gum. All right, stay tuned, everybody, for the troubleshooter here on WBSM.